height of Abbasid glory, the rich and influential gathered around them artists, scientists, and intellectuals of all types to show off their sponsorship of the arts. Poets would praise the ruler and curse his rivals. Singers would exalt the virtues of wine or women or the hunt. And philosophers would impress everyone with their insights into the meaning of life and the superiority of their religion. And among these circles of the influential was a developing genre of fine literature dedicated to the virtues and refinement of well-mannered society. The literature of the Abbasid period not only gave us some great Arabic prose, but it gives us a picture of what the ideal member of society was expected to be and a window into the values and beliefs of that time. So that's going to be our subject for today. I hope you'll stay with us. Literature is one of those terms that's really hard to define, and I think you can remember that from all your courses in beginning college literature, where this would be the first subject of discussion, and you'd never quite get an answer to what it meant. And that's because it's a really broad category. Our word literature comes from Latin, and it means letters or handwriting. It's where we get the Spanish and French words to read. So the idea is that in the past, very few people could actually read, and those were an educated elite. So the idea of anything written or read was a mark of status. Well, the Arabic term adab, which today is used synonymously with literature, like French adab and English adab, comes from a different origin. The word adab originally meant, and today it still also means, good behavior, manners, propriety, refinement, culture, and so on. It's everything that is expected from a member of the elite. Even today, the term for someone who's rude is qalil adab, literally meaning someone with little adab. One who has adab is an adib. And so what eventually evolves into fine literature begins with writings that are dedicated towards this end of teaching people the things they need to know to become well-mannered and uh, well-customed to becoming an adib. So this is distinguished from scientific writing, religious writing, certainly the buffoonery of wine poetry, and of philosophy. Well, skill with language was always of primary importance to the Arabs. Poetry was always the highest art, and storytelling was very popular. And if we think about the physical environment of the Bedouin, this definitely makes sense. Things like painting or making statues, fine architecture, that's not really practical for nomadic desert dwellers. So, they rely on poetry and telling stories for entertainment. Well, when Islam arrives on the scene, language becomes even more important. As we discussed way back in our first episode, Islam was very keen to avoid the kind of controversies that Christianity had, and still has, over the scriptures. Therefore, the Quran was believed to be the word-for-word -word revelation of God in Arabic, and that it could not be translated. 
So knowledge of Arabic became intimately connected to knowledge of Islam, and it is today. To be a good Muslim, this is one of the things you have to study. This becomes even more solidified when the Umayyads make Arabic the official language of the empire. As we discussed a while back, Islam was both the motivation for this, but also a justification for standardizing their bureaucracy and determining who could get into it. So with all of this background, you can imagine eloquence in Arabic, particularly on subjects dealing with adab, manners, refinement, correct customs and behavior, became a mark of the elite. So among these gatherings that the rich and powerful would hold, adab, along with poetry, songs, storytelling, philosophical and religious debates, became an important part. It was not only a subject for discussion, but it also gave them a set of rules for how to behave, to impress. Now, of course, poetry was always the dominant genre, but leaders also sponsored a lot of prose writing, particularly on these topics of behavior. Well, the language of writing was, of course, Arabic, but by the time of the Abbasids, that being the beginning of the third Muslim century, when this really takes off, it was a hot topic of debate whether the original Arabs still had any claim on the language. Most of the great writers of classical Arabic were not ethnic Arabs. They were North African, Central Asian, Andalusians from present-day Spain, and of course the largest group was Persians. It's still a big controversy today who gets to claim these people. So if you want to start an argument between Muslims of different countries, just ask them whether someone like Ibn Sina or Ibn Khaldun or any of the others was or was not really an Arab, and that'll get things going. By this time, the question of whether the Bedouin Arabs still had any special claim to legitimacy was being hotly debated, and this was not just a trivial debate either. As we have discussed before, the Abbasid Caliphate was split by the time of al-Ma'mun between the ethnic Arabs who had backed the original early caliphs and the groups that Ma'mun and his successors brought in to build their power base. Those were the, the tribes from Persia and especially the Turkish warriors that they brought in. They adopted a lot of Persian culture and administration which was much more advanced than what the Bedouins had. So in this environment it became a controversy of whether the original Arabs from whom the Arabic language began still could claim to have the uh, original authority over it or whether it was now everybody's language. You can get the same sort of thing going on whether British English is inherently superior to American English. That's a great topic of discussion. So in this environment a wave of writings emerged that was known as the Shu'abiyah movement. Now, Sha'ub is a plural of the word Shab, which means people, in the term of an ethnic or a national group of people, like the Kurds, or the Yemenis, or the Assyrians, could be re referred to as a Shab. As the, uh, the Americans can be referred to as a Shab. So, Shu'abiyah we can associate this word with nationalism, but it's important to, to note that our concept of political nationalism didn't really exist at that time. What was happening was different ethnic groups within this Muslim empire were beginning to write about the virtues of their group. There were Nabataeans, 
Coptic Christians in Egypt were were very big on this. Yemenis, who had had a longer civilization, a settled civilization, going back before Islam, were very proud to talk about their roots. But as you might expect, the most outspoken group in this were the Persians. So we tend to have a tendency to look for nationalism everywhere, but that's really a modern-day concept. At this time, they considered themselves to be Muslims first, and then members of certain tribes or certain clans or loyal to certain leaders, and particularly members of certain families. But the thing they were trying to assert was that whether you came from Persia or Andalusia or Egypt, you could be just as good as a scholar, as an official, as a philosopher, as anyone else. Well, to prove that, the target of their writing usually ended up being the desert Bedouin. I mean, if you wanted to show how refined people from your part of Persia was, well, you'd attack the Bedouin and show that they weren't. Well, as you would imagine, this didn't go unchallenged. So in response to this, a large movement extolling the virtues of the Arabs arose in response. And in their conflicts back and forth, some of the best classical Arabic writing was created by both sides, who were trying to show off how good they were at it. Well, depending on where your power base lie, you would hire the best writers of either side to praise the quality of your people. And so, going along with what we've discussed in previous episodes about this divide in the empire, this Shubia arab debate was one of the many polemics that was going on, and it involved the use of literature and poetry, and it gives us a lot of classical literature today. So sponsors were paying for people to write praise about their clan, about their tribe, about why one ruler was better than another, about one religion was better than another, and so on. So the good thing for us is we not only get a lot of great Arabic writing today that we can still read, but we get a lot of detail on the values and customs of the time. What it was that was important to people and what they considered to be important good behavior. And that's what we're going to look at in more detail. Okay, so let's look at some specifics. The master of classical Arabic prose is definitely a man uh, known as Al-Jahith, or Al-Jahiz is usually the way it's written in English. And like many of the names we've seen from this period, that was a nickname. That's not the name he was born with. Now, this nickname, instead of meaning something glorious like the faithful or the rightly guided, like various caliphs have been called, actually means bug-eyed or goggle-eyed, refers to someone who has bulging eyes. And this, of course, is a reference to his appearance. And one thing we always hear about Al-Jahith is he's described as being ugly. He's described as being so ugly, in fact, that the caliph hired him as a tutor for his kids, but when they got a look at him, they had to fire him. Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know. His real name was Abu Uthman Amr ibn Bahr ibn Mahbub al-Kinani al-Basri. Well, those last two names are his tribe and the city in which he grew up in. He's from the Kinani tribe, which has a uh, connection to the desert Bedouin, and he's from the city of Basra, which is one of the glowing uh, cultural cities of the day. Basra and Baghdad, as we've discussed, were the two biggies. 
Well, as we've said about a number of people on this show before, and we'll continue, uh, the life of this man is really a reflection of Abbasid society. We don't know a lot about him, but it's generally believed that he was of African origin, probably Ethiopian, probably came from slave origins, but his recent ancestors had become free and by this time had converted to Islam, and they were joined to the Kanani tribe, that's where the part of his name comes from, which was a desert uh, Bedouin tribe. This will be important because al-Jahiz identifies himself as an Arab in this Arab-non-Arab debate that's going on at the time, even though his, his origins are from Africa. In any case, he was actually born in the city of Basra. Uh, he was poor. Uh, he grew up in this city despite having this connection to the Arab tribes. He was only able to attend school up through the Kutab, which is the Quranic school, where children went to learn to memorize the Quran. And so, in reality, he was known to be kind of a vagrant. He was seen selling fish down by the river, but for the most part, he lived off the generosity of others. So he's not a really important person at the time. Now, according to one account, he only actually worked three days in his entire life in an actual job. But as we've said before, this was a time when people of talent could rise quickly, and El Jahiz quickly marked himself as a master with language, not from formal study, uh, but Basra was a hub of intellectual activity at the time. This is around the time of the Khalif al-Ma'mun, who we've discussed, the great Khalif, uh, when the uh, Beit al-Hikmah was flourishing. This is really the peak of the Golden Age. And so Basra was one of the key places. And formal institutions like universities hadn't yet taken off, Really, scholars taught in mosques and in public squares, and literally they would have circles of students around them. They, of course, lived off the sponsorship of rich officials. And so this was literally a time when a young man could sit in on the teaching circle of a promising scholar in a public place and learn. And if you had talent and a good memory, like Al-Jahiz, uh, you could show off your skills and you could get invitations into more respected and exclusive gatherings. And so he did. So we have to set the stage here a little bit. Al-Jahiz was born about 20 years into the Abbasid period. Now this was a time when the Caliphate was rapidly expanding its scientific and artistic activities. It was again, as I said, the time of the, the Beit al-Hikmah. The translation movement was going and Muslim rulers were trying to translate and analyze as much as the ancient Greek, Roman, and to some extent Hindi works as they could. And as they expected that their role as the dominant civilization and dominant empire was going to last forever, uh, they wanted to transfer all this knowledge into their civilization in their language, put their stamp and analysis on it. Now, at the same time, the Abbasids themselves, who had recently taken over, they're still trying to cement their legitimacy. And they've overthrown the Umayyads, and they're being challenged by a lot of rebel groups, but particularly the emerging Shia. And so they want to show their sponsorship, show that they're the ones who are in charge of the scientific and artistic and philosophical knowledge as much as they're in charge of everything else. Well, unlike the academic world of today, 
where we have the sort of publish or perish mentality where faculty are pressured to publish anything they can to try and get promotions. No comment there. I'm just That's what people say. The Abbasid world at the time was very different. They had a huge demand. They had tons of material that they had inherited, and they really needed to translate this, analyze it, sort of put the Islamic stamp or analysis on it. So when someone showed a talent for writing, they got commissions pretty quickly. It didn't matter if you were a vagrant who lived down by the river selling fish. So this was great for al-Jahiz. His talent for words was quickly noticed, and he was commissioned to write an essay on the role of the imam, the office of the imamet. And you can see why this would be important uh, to the Abbasids. As we said, they seized control from the Umayyads, and they claimed to be better suited to rule. But they were facing a challenge from the people who would eventually become the Shia, and of course the key point of the, the Shia, their core belief was that the direct descendants of Ali, the Prophet's son-in-law, had a special claim to rule. And in fact, in each generation, at, at every time in history, uh, one of those descendants was the Imam. And that's essentially the key point of Shiism. So the Shia, if you remember, had supported the overthrow of the Umayyads and they seem to have believed at the time that this would lead to what they wanted, that is the descendants of Ali taking power, but they quickly realized it would not. They had essentially exchanged one dynasty for a new dynasty, the Abbasids. And so the future Shia, the proto-Shia here, really become the major opponents to the Abbasids, claiming that no, it should be the Imam of the age the descendant of Ali, who should be ruling. So al-Jahiz was paid to essentially write a rebuttal to this, to write about the correct role of the imam, and no surprise, his argument would be that the Abbasid claim was correct. Now, let's just take a short digression to look at his logic here. Unfortunately, of the 300-some-odd works that al-Jahiz is said to have authored, only about 30 have survived today. We've got excerpts from others in places where he's quoted by other people, and of course you know the reason for this, as you've heard many times by now, was partially the huge destruction of the libraries by the Mongols five centuries later. But another reason is that al-Jahiz was a devoted Mu'tazilite, that rationalist school that we have discussed in many episodes. Uh, as you know, the Mutazilites are eventually going to fall out of power. They will be declared a heresy. But at the time of the Khalif al-Ma'mun, uh, they were riding strong. Ma'mun was the most vigorous proponent of Mutazilism. He's the one who started the Inquisition against the non-Mutazilites. And this was the era in which al-Jahiz lived. So, part of his job was arguing for Mutazilism and he did that very well. So in that spirit, like a good Mutazilite who believes that the real truth about God can only be known through rational inquiry, that's the way he makes his argument. So Al-Jahiz, in this essay that he writes, essentially makes the claim that since 
we can only know God through our rational faculty. That's what God gives us and enables us to know him. It could not be possible that Ali, Ibn Abi Talib, the son-in-law of the prophet, and his descendants, no matter how devout they were, no matter how good they were, they couldn't have a special spiritual relationship to God, which is essentially what the Shia believe, that these imams, these descendants of Ali, have a, a special relationship that no one else can. Well, this couldn't go along with the Mutazilite view that he has. So by saying that you can only know God through your rational inquiry, I mean, you can't say that about someone who is not yet born and been educated that they're going to be the Imam. So using this logic, Al-Jahiz is able to shoot down the entire Shia position. Now he did admit that the Muslim community needed a single wise leader, but this was to be based on that leader's knowledge and rationalism and who had proven themselves to be the best leaders, the most rational. It was of course the Abbasids and at the time Al-Ma'mun the Khalif, uh, we've talked about him and his support for education, for research, for rationalism. I mean, he could actually make a good claim to that. Well, this essay, written by uh, essentially a, a vagrant, got the attention of the Khalif himself. And if you get the attention of the Khalif, that puts you on a path to fame and financial reward. There were going to be a lot of commissions coming in for Al-Jahiz to write things, and that's what he was good at. So even today, there's a lot of debate among scholars about how much of these opinions are his own, and how much are things he was just paid to write about. Al-Jahiz went on to be a passionate defender of Mu'tazilism, of the virtues of the Arabs, uh, against uh, Shiism. Now, how much of that was actually his own opinions, or just the fact that he was commissioned to write it, uh, we'll never know. But at any rate, he was in a good place. Basra was a very good location. It was not only a big, flourishing, scholarly center like Baghdad, but it was the setting for a particular kind of scholarship. As we've said, the early Abbasids had a tremendous interest in the culture of the Bedouin, and particularly their language. Remember, the Arabic language is central to Islam, I would say far more than any other languages to a religion. And as anyone who's tried to study Quranic Arabic knows, there's still a lot of questions about grammar and meaning and word origins, and these become exceptionally important in a religion that believes that its scripture is the exact word-for-word -word words of God. Questions of Arabic grammar and philology are hugely important. Well, where are you going to get the answers? You have to go to the people who have the original language. That, of course, is the Bedouin, but there are many different tribes of the Bedouin. Uh, they have different, slightly different versions of the language. There are different dialects out there. So philology, which is the study of the evolution and structure of languages, becomes a hugely important branch of study. Well, researchers, of course, have to do field research but going out and living with the tribes in the desert is hard work. So for as much as these people claim to love and admire the Bedouin, I mean, these scholars lived in comfortable cities. So you have to go to the place where the urban world meets the desert, and that is Basra. 
as were other cities on the border of the desert like Mecca and Medina. The Bedouin would come in periodically during the year to trade, and that's where you get the chance to interview them, to hear their stories, hear their poetry, hear how they use the language. So Basra becomes a big hub for the study of the language of the Bedouin. And this type of research was very important to Al-Jahiz's work. The dominant message of his writing, beyond all his arguments for Islam, for Mu'tazilism, for the Abbasids that he was required to write, was the virtues and even the superiority of Arab culture. Superior to whom? Well, to a lot of people. As we've traced over a lot of episodes, Islam has expanded from the Arabian Peninsula. It swallowed up a lot of established cities and states like the Persians, much of the Byzantine Empire. It's inherited volumes and volumes of classical Greek learning. It's incorporated Christians and Jews and so on. And it's adopted a lot of practices from these civilizations, particularly the Persians. So Al-Jahiz who identifies with the Arabs, despite his African ancestry, he identifies with the tribes, he's out to show that traditional Arab, meaning Bedouin society, is as good, if not better, than those others. In its use of the language, they have the purest Arabic language, and if you want to be a good Muslim, then that's what you have to understand. And also that Bedouin values and behavior are superior to these settled peoples. This becomes very important and this even to this day is an important idea. People from places like Abu Dhabi and Dubai go out to live with the Bedouin in Bedouin camps for a certain amount of time but the idea that they have a sort of purity of the culture from which these values come is very important. So this project that Al-Jahiz has about writing of the superiority of Arab culture, it's going to appeal to a lot of different people. First of all, he's talking about the people of the Prophet and the companions in their language. And so from a religious point of view, particularly for religious purists, uh, for those who believe strongly in the Hadith and the Sunnah, it's going to appeal to them. Uh, secondly, we've talked about the Shu'ubiyya movement, and this is really part of the Arab response to that, to so showing that, no, the Persians or the Egyptians are not better than the Arabs. And it's a way for the Abbasids to sponsor this and show that they are still connected to this part of the population. As, as you remember, the Abbasids, although they do have roots in a connection to the family of the Prophet, they were really coming from a power base in what is today Iran, and they borrowed a lot from the Persians. So this is a way of showing that's not really what we're doing here. And then there's a final reason that's very important here, is that much of the scholarship that's going on during this translation movement is bringing in the works of the great Greeks like Aristotle and Euclid, and some works from India. But what the Khalifs want to show is they're not simply translating and copying other people's work. In fact, the Muslims weren't doing that. They were advancing all the subjects that they inherited. Now, in fact, in the West, that's all that the Arab Muslims get credit for is translating Greek knowledge and sitting on it until the Renaissance when the Europeans pick it up 
exactly where Aristotle left off and run with it. But that sort of misimpression is what al-Jahiz is also fighting against. He's trying to show that the Arabs are not just inheriting this Greek knowledge. And part of the way he does this is by showing that really the Bedouin Arabs have a lot of this scientific knowledge even before Islam came along. Now they weren't writing books about it and teaching about it the way that Aristotle did, but when we look at their behavior and the way that they interacted with the natural world, we can see that they were actually quite curious and they actually learned a lot. And in fact this idea of studying and learning by observation and experimentation is very much a part of our culture. Three hundred some odd works that El Jahiz is said to have authored. The two most famous by far are Kitab al Hayawan, which is usually translated as the Book of the Animals, and Kitab al Bukhala, which means the Book of the Misers. In this case, a Bakhil or a miser is more than just a cheap person, but it's someone who is lacking in the basic virtues and graces of hospitality that the Arabs valued. And so the Bukhala, that's the plural of these misers, these people who have poor adab, this is the subject of that book. Well, hospitality had always been one of the core values of the Bedouin, and even today it's one of the key values of Arab society. And this is because the natural environment was so harsh, traveling in it was literally a matter of life of death. So the custom of the Arab was that any traveler who appeared in your camp was entitled to three days hospitality, even if they were from an unfriendly clan. And the idea is that everybody needed this agreement. It was like a safety net for anyone who's going to travel through the desert to be able to travel and survive. But if you stayed any more than three days, you were putting a strain on the very limited resources of the host. So that's why the cutoff was set. Now this would be one of the types of values that the Arabs would like to celebrate over the Persians who had a settled more urban culture. So as we mentioned, al jahs project was to show that the Arabs had superior values and culture to more sedentary societies. And that's what the book Kitab al-Bukhala is all about. So he makes generalizations about different societies and he very often likes to show that rich people from well-off, settled societies, like parts of Persia, really turn out to be stingy and ill-mannered, despite their outward shows of friendliness and status. So the book is basically a collection of anecdotes that al-Jahiz supposedly heard from other people. And this is a very common form of writing in classical Arabic, to repeat stories that you heard from others. People would write travel books where they would essentially be collecting stories that they heard from people coming from other places. So for example, we have an anecdote about a host who would always ask his guests if they had eaten or not. And we're told, if you say yes, then he would always say, well, that's too bad because I was going to give you a big fancy meal. But if you say no, then he says, well, that's too bad. I was going to give you a lot of drinks, but the custom is you didn't drink on an empty stomach. So either way, he gets off with giving you nothing. And so what al is attacking here is 
the outward display of hospitality, which is, of course, fake. And this is the idea that the Bedouin are real people. They're genuine. They're sincere. Now, of course, many of these were humorous stories, and that, this is kind of the idea. The context for Adab, of course, was these uh, frequent nightly gatherings where people would get together, the diwans, the majlis, and they would exchange stories and poetry and a lot of naughty jokes and song. And so these were like clever anecdotes that you could relate to the group. So they would be funny, but they would also be showing off your knowledge of good virtues and behavior. So, for example, one of these is a story describes a frequent traveler from Persia who would always stay with a friend in Baghdad on his visits. And, of course, the, the Iraqi, the Baghdadi, would provide wonderful hospitality to the Persian every time he'd visit. And the visitor would give him the common invitation, you know, if you're ever in my town, look me up. So the man from Baghdad finally, unexpectedly, once has the chance to travel up to this town in northern Persia, and he drops in on the guy unannounced, assuming he's going to get the same kind of wonderful reception that he always gives. Well, the Persian, who is with a group of his friends, pretends not to recognize the Iraqi. So the Iraqi visitor, he assumes that the man is a true gentleman and a good host, and Therefore, he must not recognize him because he's wearing all this traveling gear. And, of course, when you're traveling through the, through the desert, through this rough terrain, you would wear a lot of gear to protect yourself. I mean, you were going to be sitting on an exposed camel or a horse. So he takes off his hat, and the Persian still doesn't recognize him. Then he takes off his turban, then his cloak, and so on and so on, and the guy still doesn't recognize him. Finally, the, the guy realizes that the visitor isn't taking the hint, and the Persian says to him, he says, Look, even if you take your skin off, I won't recognize you. So this is obviously a joke. It's got a punchline, and that's the idea is to make the group laugh. But it highlights some of these aspects of bad manners. So taking advantage of someone else's hospitality and not returning it, well, that's bad in giving out sincere invitations. Now, nowadays, we hear this all the time. People say, oh, if you're ever in town, look me up, or if you ever come by my town, be sure to see me. But we know most of the time they don't expect you to ever do that, and they'd probably be shocked if you actually did show up on their doorstep. Well, here, that is held up as bad behavior. And there is the way that the Persian is trying to use subtle hints to get rid of the visitor. And this, of course, are like social tact that we use. We say, oh, I'm sorry, I have a headache. Or I'm so busy, I just can't stop by. And the understanding is it's a way of saving face. You're telling the person you don't want to do this, but it gives everybody an out. So he's pretending like he doesn't recognize this person, and the Iraqi is supposed to take the hint and go away. But we have this contrast between the urbane Persian, who is using all these social conventions and social tact and hints, and the Iraqi, who is just a genuinely hospitable guy and can't believe that anyone would brush him off like that, and they can't get the point across. So finally, it becomes so obvious that there's no point in trying to hide the message, and he just tells them, hey, look, I'm not going to recognize you no matter what. So I discussed the Book of Misers here first, because it's a much easier read than the more famous and much longer Book of the Animals. Both of these have been translated into English, 
and the Book of the Misers is the kind of book you can pick up and read some excerpts from, and you should, and gives you a good idea of the behavior of the time. On the other hand, it's hard to imagine that anyone out there is really going to want to read through the Book of the Animals. In the first place, it's really long. It runs to seven volumes in the original. And the second point is the writing is typical of El Jaha's style of rambling digressions. It switches from one topic to another, going from philosophy to folklore to science and religion and just running from one to another without any sort of organization about what's coming. And lastly, it's seven volumes of essentially random information about animals much of which we can read today and tell is wrong. So if this sounds like a bizarre work, and it probably does, we have to give it some context because this is, after all, El Jahiz's most famous production. Now he wrote a lot of books on a wide range of topics, and most of them were like this. The Book of the Misers, the Book of the Animals, the Book of Eloquence, and so on. And these were intended for people who wanted to learn good adab, that is, how to be witty and charming in conversation. So these books are almost like encyclopedias of various topics. Now, by encyclopedia, I don't mean organized the way we think of an encyclopedia, where it's everything is in a certain place and it's easy to find the information you want. But I mean encyclopedic in terms of the amount of information that's in there. So the book of animals, El Jahez goes through animals one by one, relating all the information he has about them. Some of it is pseudoscience, some of it is culture, some of it is funny anecdotes, some is superstitions, customs, part of it reads like a farmer's almanac, and so forth. And it tends to meander through these without much logic. But the idea here is that if you're at a gathering, if you're sitting in a medjlis, and of course entertaining everyone with your wit and your knowledge, and say the subject of elephants comes up, then you can wax eloquently with all these interesting facts about elephants, funny stories about elephants, mistaken superstitions about elephants, interesting scientific research about elephants, and you could do the same thing with birds or dogs or whatever comes up, and that's just the animals, and then he's got other books on other topics. And so that's sort of the intent here. So when we look at this strange book, we have to realize these are the sort of things, if let's say you're at a party and one of these subjects were to come up, these are the sort of things people would discuss. Now, of course, the underlying current in all of this, though, is that the, the Arab Bedouin have this great wisdom, and this ends up shining through all the stories. And so, yes, scientists may have just discovered some interesting fact about camels from dissecting them, but it's going to turn out that the Bedouin already knew this centuries ago just from experience. And, you know, we kind of hear the same sort of stories in our culture that tell us that, you know, farmers knew such things hundreds of years ago, or the Native Americans were doing something hundreds of years ago that modern science has only now just discovered. So, for example, one of the most famous sections in the book is El Jahiz's writing on flies. And this is particularly well known because it's here that he goes into a really long digression about how life is created. And uh, basically, he calls people ignorant who believe that you need a male and female animal to reproduce uh, an offspring. 
And this is based on his observation that flies, like many other types of insects, seem to generate spontaneously. I mean, you can take a rotten piece of food and put it away someplace, and when you go back, it's crawling with bugs, you know, maggots or flies or what have you. And so, to him, obviously, they generate from the rotting food. He says that lice generate from the sweat of humans, and uh, his real proof of this is he refers to flies growing in a sealed bottle. Well, we know today that this is not possible, but this was actually a common belief among the classical and ancient theorists. Even Aristotle talked about this. It wasn't actually until the 1600s that the first experiments were actually able to isolate meat and disprove this. Because once meat has started to go bad, and it may start to have larvae of insects that you can't see, you seal it up and put it in a bottle, and the insects are still going to grow. In any case, El Jahiz criticizes people who deny this spontaneous generation. Uh, he says that they think that accepting it would go against religion, because we're told that God created people and animals as male and female in order to reproduce. But Al-Jahiz, who's a rationalist, a Mutazilite, says we can't deny what our eyes see, or at least what we think they see, and therefore animals that can grow out of food or sweat, that has to be part of God's plan, and we have to accept it and work with it, and he does. He goes on and on and on. But that's not the only part in this section about flies. He talks about superstitions involving flies, how some groups consider them to be good luck, how some tribes eat flies, and they eat fly larvae, and it turns out that they don't suffer from blindness. And then, of course, there's always the great folk wisdom that the Bedouin have. Now, a big part of his analysis is based on the idea that flies eat mosquitoes. And to him, mosquitoes are much worse. I mean, you have to credit with him with that. I mean, you know, mosquitoes have killed more humans than any other animal because they spread disease. So, he also notes the fact that mosquitoes tend to come out in the dark and flies come out in the light. And his conclusion is that if it's light, the flies will chase away the mosquitoes and eat them. And so he describes an anecdote from the philosopher Ibn Jahim, who was quite famous, how he used to take a nap and he would order his servants to close the curtains and dark, darken the room. But then he'd always end up getting bitten by mosquitoes, which was terrible. And so the servants would leave the curtains open and flies would get in the room and chase away all the mosquitoes. Now Ibn Jahim, he would keep correcting the servants, telling them, no, you have to close the curtain so the room is dark. But every time it would happen, he'd end up getting bitten by these mosquitoes. Finally, he realized with the servants, which of course servants were from the lower class, they were coming from the, the Bedouin Arab, finally he realized what they were doing. Here again, it's the wisdom of these common people is better than a fancy city guy philosopher like Ibn Jahim. And so this is the type of anecdotes that he relates. And of course, this is something that if you relate it into a, a party and you'd say it would show how much you appreciate the true, pure Bedouin and that would, uh, that would fit in uh, very well with the cultural expectations. Another big theme in all of this writing, though, is that El Jahiz emphasizes how everything has a purpose and is part of God's plan, 
and we have to respect it as such. And so even annoying things like flies, which don't seem to have a purpose, he says, well, God sends those to test us and to strengthen us. And so, for example, he gives an anecdote of a qadi, or Islamic judge, who was known to be very solemn and would sit quietly in meditation. And people would come watch him, and they'd just sit around him and be impressed with him sitting there uh, in quiet meditation. And one day this fly kept buzzing around him and kept uh, poking his eye. Finally, this man couldn't take it any longer, and he broke his composure and shooed the fly away. But then we're told that this became a lesson for the Qadi in humility, that this guy who thought he had it all together and was putting on these displays of piousness and self-control, that God sent the fly to him to give him some humility, and he was very thankful for this. Well, this is an example of some of the writings that El-Jah has uh, made and made him quite famous. Uh, he lived a quite a long age and he is said to have died at age 92 when a pile of books fell on him. Now the story is probably not true but it sort of captures what people wanted to remember about him. This was a guy, he's, even at the, his last years, he was such a great writer and reader that he was killed how by a huge stack of books falling on him. And they also wanted to make the point, of course, that Abbasid society is a place that had stacks of books so big that they could fall over and kill you. And, of course, the other side of this image is uh, five centuries later, when the Mongols conquer Baghdad, they are said to throw so many books into the river that you could walk across the river on the books. And so these images they give us a contrast between these two empires, a time when so much scholarship was being produced uh, that books could fall over and kill you, and a time when people were just throwing all this work, all this scholarship into the river and destroying it. And that's sort of a contrast here. The Muslims did indeed conquer much of the known world. They had the largest empire in the world until the Mongols came along but they wanted to be remembered as the ones filling up rooms with books, not the ones throwing them in the river. Well, thank you again for your kind attention. It's been a pleasure. I hope to see you again in the future. Thank you very much. Shukran jazilin. Wa masalam.